Welcome to Unedited, the fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges that the retail industry is facing. Brought to you by Grace Hill and Vicky Giles. From fashion, beauty and homeware, Grace and I will cover industry topics and shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. But before we get into this week's fascinating discussion, Grace, what's caught your attention over the past week? Well, I mean, it goes without saying, but Black Friday is upon us. Is it? It is. Well, we've had Topshop already promoting the event earlier than usual, and and we can see that Uniqlo's got a particularly aggressive sign-up strategy this year. Um, is there anything that you're uh, planning on purchasing at Black Friday? Do you know what I think? I think I'm one of those many people that's getting this Black Friday fatigue. I'm really not interested in getting things mm-hmm. specifically on Black Friday. Yeah. I think I probably will. I think it will catch me somehow, but I'm not going to go out and make a special effort this year mm. to buy something because it is in Black Friday. Not even a slow cooker. I do have a slow cooker and they are pretty awesome. My friends and uh, family are sick of me going on about my slow cooker. What's the new thing, though, Grace? Not slow cooker. It's the instant pot that is a pressurised cooker that does it in 45 minutes, which I've missed and regretted buying the crock pot. <laughs> um, so I'm a Celebrity is back on TV? It sure is. <laughs> Be filling my TV nights every year. Yep, they've revealed their lineup of campmates heading down under with the show already starting. Uh, we've got people... Did you not watch it last well, night? I'm going to have to confess something now, Grace. I don't watch. <laughs> well, I do. So <laughs> I can tell you that I was terrified seeing Kate Garraway and Caitlyn Jenner suspended in a box full of rats, which is my <laughs> ultimate phobia. But um, It's genuinely your ultimate phobia. It genuinely it? is. But um, it's an all-star lineup this year. Um so it'll be really interesting. We don't have, obviously, Holly Willoughby's outfits to be looking forward to this year, but... Um, Which is a crying shame for all. Yeah. We have got Ant back. Um, do you listen to Lizzo? I do. I love Lizzo. I've just really got into her, just recently. I can imagine you strolling down the street with good as hell in there. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of juice on my ears. Yeah. No, a huge fan. And she was, uh, she performed in the UK uh, recently. My cousin went to see her on tour recently. Did she? Yeah, posted some amazing Instagram uh, pictures. Um, and she's just an incredible person. And um, uh, I think Edward Ennefer was describing her, uh, describing 2019 in most recent Vogue as the year of Lizzo. It really is, though. I, she's incredible. And I have to say, I love the new Ariana Grande uh, what's the word? Collaboration? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's something about her voice, isn't there? It's yeah, great. It Definitely. What do we think about Nike ending their Amazon partnership? So in an effort to cre- increase their direct-to-consumer business, Nike is ending its partnership with Amazon. Um, initially implemented to control the number of fake sneakers entering the market, the brand's decided that it's time to pull products from the e-tailer. I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we, it's that kind of... The Amazon monster as it is, you know, it's huge and um, as seen to be kind of taking over the world. And when we see brands like Nike challenging that um, and moving away from using them as a channel, it'd be really interesting to see if other brands follow suit. I think, you know, naturally, there's, you know, in the last kind of two years, there's always been that conversation about 
Amazon, should we be selling on Amazon? And we know there was that kind of recent mention of Primark, Primark, but we know obviously that was just actually not Primark officially selling through Amazon. Um, I think that it's an interesting point that's made in one of the articles that we feature this week, cult brands for every consumer, Mm. because we're talking about cult brands today in our podcast. Nike is definitely not what some people would refer to as a cult brand. And yet they have cult status. You know, they have the sneaker app, for example, where you can buy limited edition trainers for you can enter raffles to get those trainers, those sneakers. It's They're definitely acting like a cult brand, but obviously Mm -hmm. with a huge, huge reach. And maybe ending their partnership on Amazon just kind of adds to that. This week, we're discussing how to build a cult fashion brand. How do these brands cut through that buzz and gain cult status? You know, what are their strategies and how has technology played such an important role in this type of business? We'll be looking at these brands and talking about the key factors that have contributed to their growth and also what retailers of all sizes can learn from them and apply to their own business strategies. So today we have Hannah McGee, Vice President of the UK Market of Who, What, Where. She's one of the leading women in business in the British publishing industry today and is responsible for the running of the UK business operation within the larger global company. Within 12 years, she specialised in the management of hybrid teams covering fashion, beauty and lifestyle sectors across digital, marketing, operations, commerce, sales, retail, design, production and PR. Is there nothing that this woman has not done? (laughs) As one of the catalysts since the brand's initial UK launch back in 2015, she's been instrumental in establishing the business's growth in the market whilst overseeing the combined team on the ground. Welcome, Hannah. It's so lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You've just made me sound like amazing. What a CV. I mean... <laughs> I think I've blocked all that out of my memory. Actually, it's all coming back to me. An ego boost. <laughs> That's what we aim to provide. Absolutely. Um, so let's kick this off. Our first question, how would you actually define a cult brand? Yeah, so um, cult brands, um, you know, from my perspective, is very much a brand that is more independent, selling direct to consumer, and really leveraging social as being an access point to consumers and being able to, you know, make conversions, make sales, and also their community um, and leveraging influencers. They definitely tend to have a a standout element of their design and their aesthetic, um, and they're really doing things differently in terms of their approach approach to a business you know and and certainly when I think about my career and having come from bigger corporate brands they're very much you know taking that philosophy of a startup and they're thinking about their operation entirely differently where they can really be flexible move quickly um, and change with the times Um, and I think that's very much what's putting them on the front foot uh, versus some of these bigger brands. Giving them that competitive edge and advantage being innovative and thinking about it differently absolutely okay so I guess which brands would you kind of crown cult as with cult status this year in 2019 um so for this specifically and obviously knowing I was coming here to talk to you guys I spent some time with our editor Emma Spedding and um, she's very much the specialist in our business when it comes to brands and up-and-coming brands and um you know whilst I oversee 
the total operation really felt that she'd be able to, you know, provide me with some really good intel here. And certain through our conversation, um, she called out a number of brands, the first being the Frankie Shop, a yes. brand really grounded in kind of minimalist, unfussy design. But you click straight onto their Instagram and the one thing I immediately love is the fact that they have limited stock on their bio. I mean, there you go, straight away, cult brand status, the fact that they're working with smaller mm-hmm. smaller buyers um, and really kind of getting people to buy into that exclusivity factor. Mm-hmm. Another brand is um, Rotate. You know, they're a Copenhagen-based brand. Um, and it's two influencers that are really looking at their own wardrobes and and seeing what they feel are, are the product pillars that are missing and the designs that are missing and use that as their starting point to then create a collection. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, you know, if you think about the power of influence, there's so many women that then can relate to that because they're experiencing the same thing. And finally, I'd maybe say Bernadette. The brand, their point of difference really being grounded in dresses, but also the fact that they're a mother and daughter design combo or business combo. And I think that's amazing, the fact that a cult brand is now stretching across the generations. And, you know, they're able to really bring style to the forefront rather than it being a specific demographic of people that they're designing for. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you said that across demographics because... My mum likes to think she's a bit of a, you know, fashionista. And uh, she, you know, she's like, we're going to family weddings and she's trying to look at kind of Ganny or Rixo dresses. And I think she, you know, it's interesting. It's not just millennials, Gen Z that want to be wearing these brands, is it? It's all all demographics. Very much. Um, What do you think the key ingredients are that make these type of brands highly commercial? So is it aesthetic? Is it cultural influence, creativity, being tech savvy? What is it? Um, I think there's a number of things. Definitely tech savvy. You know, the fact that these brands understand how to how to build audiences and the tech that they're using. Absolutely. It's it's I think whole brands are grounded in that. But a number of things like the kind of really. Uh, sort of come to mind as you mentioned that it's definitely the community around the brand um, and you know quite often we're seeing cult brands either being created by influencers or with a circle of influencers around them and that that community is is absolutely integral to having that immediate buy-in and immediate alignment of of an audience um, that can really help campaign for you and with you Um, I think definitely helps to promote those brands I sort of mentioned before about limited stock, and I think definitely a winning formula for these cult brands is the size of their buy. Mm-hmm. You know, Vicky, from our experience in, yeah. in our previous roles, we, you know, we've got all that kind of buying and merchandising experience. And I think so many brands are limited by just comping their merchandising numbers of years gone by. Yeah. And actually, these brands don't have that limitation. Mm-hmm. They're able to truly look at what's new, what's exciting, what, what they think is wearable, what's missing, and really use that as the starting point. Definitely consumer confidence Instagram has really changed how people dress now I think they're able to see people dressing in a much more confident way whereby the colour and texture and print and you know the ethos behind a brand is so much more important and actually I think that's really helped the consumers to feel more confident with how to you know what to wear and how and actually when they then come across a a cult brand they can really help represent that for them Mm -hmm. definitely one thing that has been really important to the success of 
cult brands is the integrity to their brand message. Mm-hmm. And you often see these brands will have a grounding mission, whether that's sustainability or fabrication or colour. And I think that's really helped these brands cut through because they've maintained that level of integrity with mm-hmm. with what they were trying to do at the get-go versus kind of just taking on every fad or every movement or every change. Mm-hmm. They're really providing a, a solution that people can buy into. Um, and whilst they might have smaller scale, that, that audience that do love them are, are real huge fans versus, you know, kind of a, an audience that is maybe a bit more fickle and shopping across lots of brands. They're not chasing any business, are they? They're standing for something and focusing on it. I guess that makes a huge difference. Huge. And, you know, can, all of a sudden you've got a community that you have a like-minded population with where you can have a conversation. Mm-hmm. These are these are not only consumers these are friends of your brand that you can genuinely chat to on through your social channels and get something back of real value yeah um and 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 those people are invested in where you're going as a business Mm -hmm. absolutely I think like that idea of community as well like how how are you seeing them really kind of fostering that sense of community on social and with their followers what to me historically feels Mm -hmm like we were trying to foster online communication now is just so natural Mm -hmm. um and this this generation of cult brands know that this is the first touch point with the consumer if they don't get this right then you know there's kind of no point so you see it through community management having conversations back and forth on comments being open about how you receive feedback using dms as a as a way to get feedback direct from your consumer um, and, and really encouraging open conversation versus being defensive or protective of what you're trying to do. You really, I like it when you see brands that are actually genuinely asking the consumer and saying, well, thank you so much for your feedback and what else do you think? Yeah. And um, I think that really makes a difference to how we see some of these larger brands operating. Definitely. Always get a bit of a kick out of it, don't you? If you see someone wearing something that you like and you comment and say, you know, it's amazing that you actually feel that you can even ask that person on social, oh, where's that that jacket from or those pairs of boots? And then they reply and say, oh, it's from X brand. Completely. Um, yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. That it's, can... it's conversations that you might maybe in real life have a bit of fear about having going yeah. up to someone saying, mm-hmm. I really love your jacket. Can you tell me where yeah. it's from? Actually, through social, you, it just feels so accessible and yeah. people are so open to conversing. So I think that's the real real added benefit that social's brought to our, to our generations is the fact that it really opens the door be, to be able to have conversations with people you maybe never would have done. Yeah, in the past. 100%. So how does Who, What, Where decide you know, which brands to back and support on your platform? Because obviously you have such a huge following and people are always looking to you guys uh, for guidance. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I think it starts with having great editorial talent. Um, and we truly do, right from our editor-in-chief, Hannah Al Massey, um, through to the entire editorial function. And they're very instinctive and are able to pick up on those brands that really cut through from an aesthetics point of view. So they definitely look for that, for that standout factor. Um, but behind that, they're also looking for brands that aren't faddy. You know, they'll stand the test of time. Um, we certainly... We don't want to be putting designs, collections, brands in front of people that we don't think can stand for our message, which is about longevity and rewear and revisiting old kind of 
key pieces in your wardrobe and being able to reinvent them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're certainly kind of using that as a factor. Another element to it is brands and fabrications that feel premium. You know, yeah. something that, you know, you really, you cherish to own rather than it just be the thing that ends up on the floor mm-hmm. in, your, in your bedroom because you just haven't had time to hang it up. Hung over a chair or a not being looked after. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then certainly, you know, we are trying, we're really trying as a publication to support that tra- transition in being more sustainable. So that is, that is definitely a factor within who we look at. Alongside inclusivity, you know, we really want to make sure that we're putting brands in front of people that, you know, as a as a consumer, you feel you can buy into. And I have to say, from a from a cult brand perspective, this is probably one of the biggest areas they need to look at is mm-hmm. is the size ranging mm-hmm. um, of their product offering. Yeah, you know where they've bought small because it lessens risk and yeah. they're creating exclusivity. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of that also means that they sometimes don't have the depth in all the sizes um, and not everyone can buy into it. I mean, you yeah. know, it, it, it certainly creates a, another area that I think those brands need to think and, and look at to develop. Well, we saw Reformation having an extended sizes range and you quite often see on their, um, on their social pages people saying, oh, does that dress come in extended sizes or does that dress come in extended sizes? And it, almost to kind of go back to your point before, they do engage in that conversation with people. Unfortunately not, or there's no plans to currently, but we've registered your interest in it. And I think that's kind of credit to them that they're actually taking part in that conversation rather than trying to sort of hide behind something and... Yeah. And, and, and pretend it's not happening. Yeah. But I know that's definitely something that they got pulled up on yeah. quite a lot at the beginning. Yeah, 100%. I feel like there's more and more cult brands that are emerging that their message is being size exclusive. Is, uh, inclusive, not size exclusive. Size, size inclusive. inclusive. Um, you know, and offering it across all shapes and sizes and being able to like see what that product looks like on a different body type or a different body shape I think is incredibly powerful definitely on their website or whether that's through their social and we've um, had through who what where we've had so so many good bits of feedback around um our, our the way we talk to people and the fact that we really aim not to have a patronizing edge and just visually, when you when you go through the site, it is inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, women of larger sizes quite often will, will communicate with us and share with us, say, you know, and say, you know, we see you, we, we see you representing everyone. Um, and I think working for an online publication, I just feel so refreshed by the fact that we have that strategy. And, you know, that really helps me feel a good sense of, you know, meaning as to, what I what I'm doing in my role and helping the team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think millennial consumers look to in their favourite brands, and how do you see this changing for Gen Z? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one because I I personally try to not pigeonhole consumer types too much, <laughs> um, and certainly I think sometimes the way. We can talk about consumers in these types of marketing conversations. We start to pigeonhole too tightly. Yeah. Um, but I'm about to completely ruin that statement now. And, you know, <laughs> by giving, giving an answer. Yeah, yeah, by giving an answer, exactly. I'm not going to sit on the fence too much. Um, but I think as a millennial, personally, certainly what I see sort of playing into that audience is definitely convenience. 
you know, we've grown up at a time, Vicky, you will remember this, when we when we uh, used to work, time's gone by. Uh-huh. You know, we, we started in brands that didn't have an e-commerce business that Not, has grown. Didn't exist. Did, didn't exist. We were just retailers. Yeah. Um, and and so when you look back at that now, I mean, it, it blows my mind that that was the case. But this millennial audience has grown up with convenient being, right, I've got a wedding at the weekend, I need to buy a dress, I'll go out tomorrow, to now experiencing, I'm going to, I'm going to an evening event tonight, what can I get, you know, in the next hour for delivery to mm-hmm. my desk? So I think convenience certainly plays into this um, millennial audience and sadly I think you know this this generation has grown up at a time when there have been things like 9-11 and the economic crash and that caused a lot of distrust and challenges that you know fear and naturally with that um, and especially looking to the crash specifically it created a collection of consumers that really started to convert through offers discounts deals um, and I think that's that's a really sad element to our high street, I think, is this discount behaviour that we've mm-hmm. seen over the, the last number of years now, but has really kind of come from that type of millennial audience and that want and need for bargains. We know they're not as loyal, um, and therefore this kind of discounting behaviour has really brought that loyalty in and, and got their attention. But certainly I think where they they play out is the fact that we know millennials are the true sharers. They're the first generation to truly be using social all the time and oversharing, which I'm sure we'll all regret in in, uh, 10, 15 years' time. We don't know what we're doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But also through that distrust of maybe those bigger brands and retailers comes the flip side of that and that they really trust the people in their direct community, those influencers that they really like, um, and will really follow on. And once once they create that sort of digital narrative with an influencer or a digital narrative with a group of ambassadors, they will be influenced to purchase. And I think that that really um, makes that millennial audience stand out. Mm-hmm. I was mentioning to Hannah how obsessed I am with Monique. We're and both a little bit obsessed, obsessed. with Monique, and, right? and you know, and I and I see what she puts up and. I'm running out to to get it or style something similar if I can't afford that. You did, didn't you? With the I next did. scarf. I uh, she had this I think she was wearing like the Rixo um suede jacket, jacket yeah. and she had a neck scarf on with a dress next and day. next day in I trotted next with scarf. my neck scarf and old Zara but it was, I think that's jacket. the point. It was an old suede jacket yeah, that you found. Perfect. You were like, I'm restyling this. And I would never have thought of that outfit if I hadn't if seen, hadn't it, seen on it on Monique's Instagram. I mean, Monique is, is the dream anyway. She's so lovely um, and she, you know, she's such a great person to work with. But you're, you're right. It's, once you have those kind of brands or influencers that you really relate to, it's amazing. And quite often when I'm in conversations with people in industry or guys like yourselves, Hmm. um, it will come up about how much people love the Who What Wear site and, you know, it makes them click through and they open our emails. And I'm looking back at them saying, me too. You know, I'm I'm the person that works there (laughs) leading the operation. And I'm thinking, well, I am that person that gets the email and thinks, oh, what an exciting subject line. I can't wait to click. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm that fan. I'm that person. I think you're always wanting to discover those new it's almost like you're looking not necessarily for the new brands but it's like also the new influencer who's then going to lead you to brands that kind of 
you would like to be associated with and where and you respect their style and who they stand for and you trust them it goes back to that trust thing doesn't it yeah Um, absolutely and I think that that links us nicely to kind of the evolution of the millennial to the gen z demographic here we have a generation that has grown up with technology entirely you know this is their grounding way to communicate or to be inspired they're not as savvy as kind of what we used to do in terms of running down the high street and desperately trying to find a dress for the weekend. Um, they're, you know, they're pure digital natives and, and that really makes them a great audience to be able to speak to and that cult brands um, really need to be aware of when they're, when they're growing, growing their businesses. They're a, they're a generation that are so, you know, culturally aware in a way that they don't have any cultural divides mm-hmm. that previous generations have had so and I find that actually that in itself really inspires the way they dress because actually they don't pocket people into these separate segregations of like you're this or you're that mm-hmm. it's more about their identity as a person and they're really open to who their friendship groups are and who their community mm-hmm. is I think it's a real standout element of that generation that just makes me feel really inspired by them and for me to look to them and go you're doing things so differently and, and you know, it makes me feel proud, actually, mm. that we have this generation up and coming. And in terms of, you know, how they shop differently, they are the people that are using YouTube and they are the people that are making conversions because of how that then translates into their own digital lifestyle, whether yeah. that's through their own social channels. And something fascinating about this generation is, is how they're able to identify hype, mm-hmm. buy products... And then resell them. I mean, it's just an absolute phenomenon. You know, you look at Depop and you think a world of these amazing consumers have created businesses just through being an individual and identifying an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I heard someone say it was like micropreneurship, isn't it? It's like all these people that are... And it's not about ownership anymore. It's about just associating yourself with that product and then knowing that you're going to recycle that and put that back into the, yeah. to the system. And I think the hype thing is so important. It's like, what does create that hype? It's like, yeah. where does that come from? Totally. Yeah. How do you, how are they identifying hype earlier than other demographics? Even I the guess. brands themselves, I guess, yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I think they're able to, it's, it's kind of what we're talking to in cult mm. brands. I think they're seeing a message that they really relate to and go, yeah, this, this feels new, this mm-hmm. feels cool, this feels different. Mm. And yes, generations have been doing that for hundreds of years, you know, buying into something that's different and something that's new. But what this generation is doing entirely differently is they're jumping on that and they're, they're creating a bubble out of it and they're creating communities out of it. They're having face-to-face IRL events from it and, you know, building their personal <laughs> brands um, using those moments. And, it, you know, it just really makes me think that they, they're really leading the way in, in being able to not just rely on the system, not just rely on the jobs that they, you know, that are out there at the moment. They're, they're cutting out and carving out an opportunity for themselves. Um, it makes me think about when I was 15, 16... I used to love shopping in charity shops. I loved it. It was, I used to get an absolute buzz out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I still love it to this day, but I can't go in a charity shop without seeing a large group of sort of 20-somethings or, or you know, 
younger, I think, oh my God, like if, only, if only it had been this accessible back yeah. in my day, because certainly yeah. when I used to walk into a charity shop, it was like, please no one see me <laughs> from school. Um, you know, and you sort of rummage around and quickly dash out again. And now it's just such a big thing that, you know, people are really open to that creativity and being, being different. Do you think there are any specific brands that are communicating um, with that Gen Z demographic particularly well or kind of showing best practice in that area? Yeah, I think the Glossiers of the world are doing a really good job at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the fact that Glossier, you know, opened the conversation to really actually guide them as to what to bring to market and to how to evolve their product offer yeah. immediately makes them stand out and come to mind when we talk about that conversation piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think any brand that's able to manage their community well through social mm. and then to think of a face-to-face experience that have real reason integrity and integrity are the brands that are, are thinking about it entirely differently and doing it well. Yeah. So... Hannah, is there such a thing as a cult brand for boomers or the older market? I know you kind of mentioned Bernadette and the fact that they had this kind of mother-daughter element to their business. Um, It'd be great to kind of discuss what the untapped opportunities are. Yeah, I think there's definitely an opportunity for the boomers market. And you're absolutely right, Bernadette is a good example of that. At Fashion Week, again, we saw brands send down models for brands that we historically would have seen younger models but they also sent down mother and daughter scenarios um so I definitely think that 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 we're trying to as a fashion industry make designs more timeless so I think as well what I think we sometimes forget is that the boomer generation grew up in a time of punk mod revival 70s hippies you know they truly understand what it looks like to shop into a real defined design aesthetic mm-hmm. um, I just think there is a very different perspective to it that maybe a boomer has to Gen Z and you know boomers maybe would have used that that aesthetic to define the group and community that they were in mm-hmm. versus Gen Z they're using it to define themselves as individuals but are completely embracing all the different people that they can be engaged with and speak to, um, and it's not a it's not a limiting factor to who their community can be. Um, but when we think about it from a, the perspective of brands and who's doing it well, I think it's definitely worth mentioning the likes of Rixo that you know they're going after print and you know great silhouettes. But actually, it doesn't matter what age you are. It's timeless, you know, isn't it? Completely, Vicky. Completely timeless, and it suits all shapes sizes it suits different ages um and and I think that's brilliant and so absolutely I feel there is more to be done there in terms of considering how cult brands um deliver out to to broader generations boomer being one of them Mm -hmm. how do you think cult brands work specifically with influencers and what is the value of these influencers yeah so I think the for cult brands we you know we've discussed about how much more we feel their message is authentic. And with a more authentic message comes natural, a natural following and buy-in from influencers. Mm-hmm. So I think immediately people are able to really get behind what a, what a cult brand is able to do because it's not grey, it's not vague. They're really clear about what it is yeah. they're going after. Um, so naturally, I think that community evolves quite quickly. 
I think influencers are, are very important to all strategies of brands that are growing. Um, but I would say there's a very fine line with kind of who you're working with. You know, budgets are very different in cult brands and actually the beauty of um, having those kind of direct relationships that they have with influencers means that they can go after more the gifting route versus the paid-for route and actually can, can uh, along with that, then have a great way of them buying in or, or influencers buying in through engagement um, and actually see much better engagement through the work that they're doing with the cult brand. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're really they're really thoughtful and they're considered and they want to be aligned to that kind of brand. And actually something we've done internally through Who What Wear over a number of years now is we've built up our own internal influencer agency because you know we understand what it's like to be able to partner brands with influencers and what they truly need. And you know that that has really helped us in the way that we have conversations with brands as well. So how does that work then, that, that kind of whole scheme that you guys have set up? Yeah, so we're really lucky because it's led by Rachel Zellick. And if you don't follow Rachel Zellick... Oh my Zellick, God, I am obsessed with her. Yeah, m- mostly that she's a total fan. I got my productivity hacks diary from her IGTV. Yes. And her little son, so cute. So cute, August. <laughs> You're like an ultimate fangirl. Uh, I actually have to say, I think I put her above Monique. <gasps> big news big she news, is pretty Grace. cool she is pretty cool she's really she's cool she's got my seal of approval yeah well. absolutely <laughs> she's really cool and so I think the fact that we have someone really leading that charge who you know she's very humble but she is an influencer herself as we've talked about there you know mm-hmm. we, we're responding to, to what she's putting out there but what Rachel really brings to the table is again these direct relationships with a lot of these influencers yes we have thousands of people that, that we engage with and that are on our, our, on our um, database that, that we work with. But actually, I mean, it blows my mind the amount of people reach Rachel knows personally and can pick up the phone to and have a really great, meaningful conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that's really what makes our kind of agency proposition stand out versus using other partners because, you know, we can, we can introduce an influencer to a brand, we can bring an influencer into our content... Um, but actually have, have done that through really great conversation and understanding what they need out of something, what we need out of something, and great, really, great, create really collaborative partnerships. Amazing. So you're almost like a connector not only for the Who What Wear business and bringing them on board, but also just brands and influencers and finding the right people for them? Or absolutely, Grace, absolutely. Okay. And I think influencers, whilst we, you know, whilst... The influencer has been around now for a long time and what we maybe would have historically called a blogger. We know that actually this is a part of a business operation that actually some brands really struggle to deliver on because they don't quite fit anywhere. They're not Mm. quite their historic marketing offering. They're not quite their historic PR offering. Mm. So actually being able to come to us as a publisher and use us to advise them yeah. who they should speak to, who can provide the right reach and engagement, who's got the right audience, we found to be really beneficial. Um, so what um, criteria should brands be considering when choosing brand ambassadors? Yeah, I think multiple multiple things um, come to mind about kind of who they want to work with. It definitely needs to be people that w- that naturally fit within within their audience structure. You know, don't go and be a brand that's about sustainability and work with someone that's, you know, worked with high street brands last week 
and that you know they can't carry yeah. that message with integrity. Yeah. Um, and I think it really is uh, with integrity that you know those. It's through that filter that you have to use to be able to really find the people that you really want supporting your brand. Um, I'd love to get your take on hashtag ad and hashtag gift, which we know we tend to see crop up on influencers and. Uh, or via brands' Instagram pages. I'd love to get your take on the impact that those hashtags have, and we've discussed trust, and especially how it influences that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've really seen this grow over the last 12 months, um, and the way that influencers are calling out these partnerships. I think from a consumer perspective, at first, there was a bit of an immediate, you know, questioning of, who do I follow now? Are these influencers really authentic? To the conversation changing and the fact that people really stepping back and go, okay, well, this is their job and I understand they also need to earn a living or have product to promote. And I think that's the different filter. What does create distrust with a consumer, reader, follower is when you see an influencer jumping from one message to another. Mm. I think that is... That's when people, that's what really creates a break in loyalty, I think, to somebody you might follow. Again, it goes back to, you know, it's a, you, you follow an influencer because they really stand for something sustainable and then actually they contradict themselves because it was paid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where we then see the change in that and people will unfollow or decide that, you know, they don't have that same kind of alignment with that person yeah. that, they, that they used to. But actually, I think hashtag ad and hashtag gifted now is becoming just more and more a part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and a good thing, actually, to, to, have, you know, to be declaring that and have that level of transparency. I think it gives consumers a way of understanding the influencer market a lot better than mm. they may be used to. Um, and, it, you know, these people can't spend all of this time doing something with no benefit at the end it has there has to be a benefit somewhere they're they're turning it into a job they're turning it into something that should pay yeah um so you know it's good that we have the regulations now to be able to understand that absolutely so when I was recently chatting to Chloe Watts founder of Chloe Digital we were talking about Chris Lim and how she's really diversified her business Um, She's now got her studio arm, um, creating digital communications for brands, but also now Bumo, a a weekly digest for parents. And I think that really is a great way to be able to maintain cult status because you're using your brand on kind of as a top line way of speaking to people. But then below that are offering them lots of different ways to engage with you. And I think cult brands can really take something from that diversification um, and look to that to really think about expanding And I think it's really important, that diversification. And I was recently in a conversation with somebody in the banking industry where an influencer had come to them and asked for funding. And when it's grounded in just one idea or one person, it's very difficult for banks and people to invest because ultimately it's just pitched on that that one person. Yeah. Um, So actually, I think cult brands can really take something from this and think about all arms of their business that they can grow and and use this you know side hustle style evolution that we're in to their absolute benefit and create multi pockets of areas of their business versus there being one big area that they want to scale in a really big way. I think another way to maintain cult status is growing their audience sustainably, really having a focused social strategy, focused search strategy. 
So how do cult brands kind of maintain authenticity as they grow? We know that's fundamental and key to uh, this type of business. Yeah, I think it's important. I think it comes down to um, really being careful about who they work with. They have to take every opportunity and align it back to their original statement and mission. And I think this is where you do see brands start to go in the wrong direction. They see the the bubble and the shiny lights of scale, mm, money, yeah. you know. The have, dollar signs. <laughs> the dollar signs, absolutely. And at that point, then start to make decisions that really deviate, actually, away from what they began as. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that can be a very dangerous route. And, you know, I'd really stress with all brands that are on that kind of growth trajectory to to never confuse awareness with with scale and growth, um, you know, or brand growth, should I say. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you have to think really differently. Yeah, absolutely. What does a cult brand look like with no online presence or very little online presence? And does that in fact exist? Yeah, I do think it exists. I think it exists because of how much the high street has changed. And actually... If any of my friends listen to this podcast afterwards, they'll be rolling their eyes. But one of my absolute favourite places in the whole world is Margate. Now, I'm a Kent girl, Kent coast. Um, and Margate has historically been um, a, really, a really different place. And actually what has evolved there is this real creative hub of brands coming in and taking retail space and creating it into something really amazing, whether that's a bakery or whether that is a vintage store. And you've got this whole regeneration of the high street happening through the old town. So, yeah, I think it definitely is happening in that capacity. And it really reminds me of kind of what happened in the early 2000s with the East End. You know, that's, again, it was an area that wasn't considered as affluent and people came in, they took retail space and then they made it into something through through being really creative um, so I do think the cult brand exists without online. But what I would say is for those brands that begin in that way, they have to catch up very quickly in having an online presence so that they can then talk to their consumer and have a conversation about, you know, where the evolution of the brand sits and lies and get that kind of feedback. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a brick and mortar cult brand is actually at this moment more exclusive because more cult you, more cult because you can't access it in the same way that we are now so used to being able to type into google or use instagram or social media to access and learn more but then again it comes back to that communication part which i think is an interesting factor that you can't do if you have, don't have an online presence absolutely so what is the role of pop-ups for insta-famous brands. I know everyone in the office was very excited and we heard that Glossier is bringing back a London pop-up. Um, yay! yay. <laughs> so what factors should kind of brands take into consideration when looking at this type of presence? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. I think some brands have been successful at driving sales through pop-ups, so mm-hmm. I don't want to disregard that. Yeah. But, and here's my, my kind of real... Uh, contradiction to that is that a brand really needs to start up start a pop-up with a real intention and really have planned out what that space is going to mean for them Um, and actually that's where you know when I look at it from an operations point of view businesses have to consider where this cost truly sits actually is it a marketing cost versus it being all about sales and conversions 
or is it an e-commerce investment? Because actually what you're trying to get out of it, your intention out of that space is about creating engagement with consumers and therefore building up your newsletter file. So I think that's the bit that really needs to be considered before. Um, where bricks and mortar in association to stores, it was about very much being at the bottom end of that marketing funnel and about purchase. It's now about flipping that entirely. It's on, on its head and, and creating it is creating an opportunity to get to know a brand and to get to know what the reasons and the factors are behind why they exist and where they've grown from. I think another part to pop-ups is being able to grow really meaningful relationships you know being able to look at people not as being walking dollar signs but actually you know really thinking about how they're going to retain those consumers and talk to them about what it is that they want from the brand and and you know where they see them going Um, and I think you know we talked before about feedback and I think this is really important another element I would urge brands to really think through or to ask them to do, is to do their maths before. Mm. A pop-up is great and can really do great things for brands, but they're not cheap to run. And, you know, you really need to sit back and ask yourself, what are those outcomes? What does success look like from having a physical space? And from that, really then work back and and see that as, well, what does that look like as an an hourly target or a daily target? Is it football? Is it traffic? Is it, you know, we're going to grow our social? And in which case, if if the maths works out, then absolutely. I know this probably makes you sound really boring because this isn't the glamorous part of the industry, but this is is the part that means you can continue to exist. Mm -hmm. Invest too much in pop-ups and, you know, you could ultimately ruin ruin your business in in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I really like that point you made about what's the long-term strategy because I think with Reformation when they announced the um, you know coming to Westbourne Grove and having that store that was in line with now being able to ship to the UK um, so it shows kind of what their intention I guess behind was that there's a long-term plan that yeah. they can now continue to service um, those customers. Completely, it has to have an added value metric to being face-to-face with somebody. You know, it can't be discount driven, it can't be offer driven, it has to be meaningful. Um, You know, the generations like Gen Z, they expect that, they expect it to be a meaningful conversation and build a relationship. So I'd ask brands to really think, you know, what does an IRL experience, what does that add, how does that add value to our brand? Hannah, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. We've had so much fun. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to sit here and... Um, chat with you guys about cult brands and the meaning of that and where it's all going (laughs) absolutely thank you so much thanks for listening to unedited if you've enjoyed today's conversation with hannah make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with upcoming episodes it would absolutely make our day if you could rate review or subscribe to us you can get in touch at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore hq bye everyone bye